Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Where They At. This is the 10th edition of uh, my show, my podcast, which um, features and gets insight from the great figures in sports uh, and great retired figures in sports that have paved the way for what goes on now in a multi-billion dollar business. My name is Nabate Isles, and without further ado, I want to introduce uh, the 10th guest on actually the ninth featured guest. Uh, one of the shows was coverage at All-Star Weekend, but the ninth guest here is uh, someone that has really accomplished so much in the National Basketball Association and sports in general. He was the youngest general manager in NBA history at age 28 for the expansion Phoenix Suns, where he had one of the longest tenures ever at 26 years. He's a four-time NBA executive of the year, managing director of USA Basketball since 2005, and chairman of the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame since 2009, where he was inducted in 2004. And once again, one of the most prolific figures in all professional sports. My pleasure to present Mr. Jerry Colangelo. How are you, sir? I'm fine, and it's nice to be with you. Thank you. Nice to be with you as well. And it was great to see you receive uh, the Lifetime Achievement Award at the Legends Brunch, uh, also on Sunday, in your hometown, hometown of Chicago, actually. so Yeah, that was uh, very humbling, uh, quite honestly, um, you know, they had a crowd of over 3,000 people uh, at McCormick Place and, um, you know, brought back a lot of memories. And it, to me, it's one of the great highlights of every All-Star Weekend because I see people that I've been involved with for decades. And, mm-hmm. um, um, you know, when Bill Russell still attends, by way of example, uh, Wayne Embry, my dear friend, um, you know, there, there were so many people there that were important in my life that uh, um, I really enjoyed the time. Wow, absolutely. And, and Mr. Emery, I had a, a, the honor to speak with him, actually, uh, last week during All-Star Weekend. So, so much. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just honored to speak with both of you within a week. It's just, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just completely honored, for sure. Um, but I wanted to ask you, as you were growing up in the Chicago area, who were your influences when it came to athletics and leadership? Well, basketball was not that big a thing at the time. Uh, baseball was the uh, the big appeal for kids of my age at the time. Um, but when I was seven, uh, I, I was handed a basketball and I smelled it, smelled the leather. And it was the beginning of a lifetime love affair that still is going on. So um, I just, the, my, my guys, the guys I idolized were the guys on the playground who were playing, playing ball. I wanted to be like them. You know, I wanted to play up, always play with older, older players. And, um, you know, I think that really helped me a great deal. And learning the game the way I did on the streets, to be quite honest about it, mm-hmm. uh, served me well. It got me an education. It got me exposure. It led to all kinds of things. And, you know, you mentioned Phoenix, but when I started in the NBA, it was with the Chicago Bulls. Yes. And uh, the birth of the Bulls in 1966. So I was um, 25, 26 years old, and uh, we were working on trying to bring pro basketball to Chicago. And uh, the fellow who I had gone to work with in the incentive merchandising business had a dream. That was to bring pro ball to Chicago. And uh, after six months of hustling, 
we, we were awarded a franchise, the first expansion team of the modern era. The Chicago was the 10th team in the NBA at the time. And what I didn't know is that I was joining a mom and pop league, the NBA, which was about to explode over the next decade mm-hmm. in terms of expansion. And that led to me going to Phoenix just two years later to start yet another expansion team, the Phoenix franchise. That's right. Wow. And and that person was Dick Klein, Mr. Dick Klein. That's correct. And uh, and it's funny, he went to Northwestern while you went to University of Illinois. So that kind right. of Big Ten rivalry, right. Chicago rivalry there. Yeah. <laughs> Talking with um, Mr. Jerry Colangelo, Naismith Basketball Hall of Famer, uh, also one of the most prolific executives in the history of the National Basketball Association. And and Mr. Colangelo, what was the what were the principles that is everlasting for you to this day, the principles you learned growing up, especially in high school, playing on the streets, as well as then going on to uh, the University of Kansas, then Illinois? Well, I, I came from a suburb that was very ethnic, um, very hardworking, blue collar, lunch bucket uh, kind of a community. And so we didn't have much of anything, but whatever we had, we shared with our neighbors. Uh, I learned things about hard work, about loyalty, about compassion, about sharing, uh, values that I believe I got through my family and the neighbors and the neighborhood I grew up with. I wouldn't trade any of that for all the money in the world. That kind of shaped me in terms of my value system. And so uh, that's been a part of who I am the University of Kansas. It was funny. You were recruited by Kansas, Illinois, Notre Dame, and Michigan. I believe those four schools, which are, you know, creme de la creme when it comes to athletics, for sure, um, at that time and now. But um, it was interesting. Um, Fog Allen actually just left Kansas around that time, the great Fog Allen, uh, the great coach. But Wilt Chamberlain was there. And I know you were so disappointed when Wilt uh, pretty much uh, broke the news that he was going to leave Kansas. And yes, that caused yes. you to transfer to Illinois. <laughs> yeah, that's all true. And, and I should point out that um, I was highly recruited coming out of high school as a basketball player. I actually had 66 offers and I limited my interest to the four schools that you mentioned, mm-hmm. primarily because I was also a baseball pro prospect as a pitcher Ah. and I was playing high school baseball Mm -hmm. and so I didn't have time to go look at schools um I had interest in in the schools that I listed but Wilt was the draw for me because I saw him as a ticket to winning an NCAA championship Mm. and that's why I decided to go to Kansas and and yes I was very disappointed when he shared with me one evening Uh, During that first semester, I was there that uh, he wasn't going to stay. He was going to sign with the Globetrotters. He was going to, I think he got $75,000 in 1957. (laughs) And he he waited until he was eligible for the draft. Back in the day, you you weren't eligible until four years after your high school class graduated. Mm. So he had to wait a year. He played with the Trotters, and then he was drafted. Uh, but that was enough for me to transfer to Illinois back to my home state school, home state mm-hmm. uh, in that university. And, you know, a lot of good things happened there. It, re- it really did. Uh, I, 
I, I was okay as a player. I was captain and uh, all Big Ten and all those kinds of things. And um, But I met a young lady who uh, have, I can now look back and say that was 59 years ago and we're still, we're still married. So that wow. was pretty good. That's yeah. the best thing I've ever done. Yeah. And um, that name recognition because of being in Illinois led to meeting Mr. Klein mm-hmm. who wanted me to be part of his, his team, you know, in terms of trying to get a team. And, and so it was, a, a, I was very fortunate to be in the right place, right time. And, you know, God has a plan for everyone's life. And his plan for me was, you're going to Kansas for a while, but you're going to leave and you're going to go to Illinois and all these things are going to happen. And so I look at it this way. I just take a step at a time and I'm just kind of following, following the path. That's all I can do. That's right. That's right. And and speaking of following that path, I remember you said something very interesting in your autobiography, which is called How You Play the Game, Lessons for Life from a Billion Dollar Business of Sports. Now, yes. this, this book, it, it was it was it was released 20 years ago over 20 years ago but it still still resonates to this day and beyond generations beyond um but you said something interesting how entrepreneurship reminds you of sports the individual challenge the all-out pressure and the winning and the losing elaborate more on that especially right after school in illinois when you were uh struggling financially sure well first of all um you know the book itself was to to bring into focus that um, all these things converge. There's mm-hmm. a point where business and sports and money and all of these things kind of come together. And you have to be able to maneuver through all of that and prepare yourself. Um, you know, I thought it was a, a very, very interesting um, situation to find myself in where I could kind of look at competition in a way, being a competitor as an athlete, being in the business world and competing for an order or for whatever it might've been in terms of the business that you were trying to transact. So um, I didn't know I was preparing myself for the ultimate in my life, Mm -hmm. which was to be in a position where I had a platform Um, I had a background of being an athlete. I was very competitive that went over into the business world. Um, I believe strongly in relationships that you had to build fences and build relationships. And that's what life is all about. And if you take that competitiveness and your ability to communicate, articulate and maneuver through the system, if you will, you have a chance for success, mm-hmm. but it takes all of those ingredients to make that happen. Right. Where they at? We are featuring uh, Mr. Jerry Colangelo, Naismith Basketball Hall of Famer. Uh, the tenth episode of Where They At. My name is Nabate Isles. Now, Mr. Colangelo, you okay? You were with the Bulls at, at 25, 26 years old, and you were a scout, like a general scout, and, and you had to do everything within that organization. And I know that really helped you and prepared you to eventually be the general manager for the Suns and to be an exemplary executive for the next four or five decades. So talk about how that really helped with your time management and also being able to learn on the fly. Well, we had a very small organization. 
Um, just like the NBA league offices back then, they had like 25 people, period. Mm -hmm. So we had a very small staff of eight or nine people in Chicago. And you did whatever it was required to do. Didn't mm -hmm. matter. Sweep the floors if you had to. Wow. Um, yep. But basically, I was in charge of all the scouting, all the marketing, and assisting the GM, Dick Klein, president and GM, in everything that he was doing. Mm -hmm. So um, kind of a jack of all trades, master of nothing. <laughs> uh, but I was learning in the trenches. I was learning on the job. I remember making calls to the other nine teams in the NBA, just trying to get information, introducing myself and um, asking questions because I had a whole list of questions as we were trying to build a little organization and so forth. And uh, I, I could not have been in a happier situation. Here I was a local kid uh, with a professional sports team, basketball of all things, and um, you know, it was uh, every day you woke up. And by the way, to this day, nothing's really changed for me. Mm -hmm. You know, I get up every day really excited about the day and what, what lies ahead. And um, it could not have been a better start for me in pro sports than, um, than at that time. And prior to that, including just a, a couple of days before the announcement of the birth of the Bulls, I was still playing competitively in a semi-pro league for $50 a game. Mm -hmm. I was the only right. um, actually Caucasian player on an all-black Chicago team that didn't have a home court. We played all our games on the road. 50 bucks a game, and, and if that in those days, that really helped mm -hmm. when you're raising a little family, a couple of games a week, an extra 100 bucks a week. And so... I loved every second of that. I loved the competition. And, um, you know, when we hired Johnny Kerr to be our first coach in Chicago, mm -hmm. um, there was a YMCA down the street, the Lawson YMCA. We used that as a headquarters for workouts when the players were coming in, uh, draft picks or even free agents or whatever. And Johnny and I would play two on two against all of our potential players for the bulls we knew we were going to have a long year because johnny and i were undefeated all summer long no matter who came in to play us yeah yeah but hey it's expansion expansion team so you have an excuse you know you have an excuse. yeah there you go. There you go. well like so um i wanted to to ask you about the phoenix suns organization how it the organization flourished uh pretty quickly mm -hmm. in the mid 70s uh, there was a good core going with paul westfall great trade to get paul westfall you had to trade Charlie Scott, who's a, Charlie Scott, and they're both Hall of Famers, you know, of course. Right. But but Paul Westfall being the center of that, along with Alvin Adams that you drafted Rookie as well. Rookie of the year. Rookie of mm -hmm. the year, yes, indeed. And then that 76 Suns team made the NBA Finals against the mighty Boston Celtics with John Havlicek and Dave Cowens. Um, now, then things turned. There was a drug scandal that happened with some of the players, and those players were very talented too, but it's just a shame how things went downhill. But how were you able to handle this situation and eventually get the Suns back to prominence in the late 80s on, and then, of course, the rest is history when Charles Barkley came in? Well, there was a very ambitious uh, political type in our, in our city who used um, – the Phoenix Suns as an opportunity for himself. Mm. So I call it a witch hunt. 
regarding things that might have happened. It, by the way, nothing was ever proven about any of our players, mm -hmm. none of them. Mm -hmm. But it did cause what you uh, alluded to, and that was this investigation, and there was a cloud hanging over all of us. But, you know, there's an old saying, out of adversity comes opportunity. Mm -hmm. And um, when I was first hired, when I came to Phoenix, I didn't have two nickels in my pocket. But I asked for an option to buy the team. And one of the potential owners kind of snickered when I said that. But I got it. Mm -hmm. That was in 1968. Well, because of circumstances, because of the cloud that I'm referring to with that drug investigation, uh, ownership was ready to, to sell. So in 1987, I had six weeks to try to put a deal together to buy the team. And I was able to do that. Um, and so I had paid my dues. I had seen an opportunity through that adversity and I had people willing to join with me mm -hmm. and uh, I was able to buy it in 1987 for $44 million. And uh, in 1988, we went from 28 wins to 55 wins in right. an immediate Western Conference Finals uh, uh, showing. Uh, we had traded for Kevin Johnson and Ty Corbin and Mark West, mm -hmm. traded our best player, Larry Nance, to Cleveland. We got the three players I mentioned and the draft pick that turned out to be Dan Marley. Mm -hmm. And then I signed Tom Chambers, the first unrestricted free agent in history. That's right. And we made that kind of a leap. And then we averaged 55 wins a year for the next decade. Mm -hmm. So it was quite a run for ourselves. Well, absolutely. And, and in 1992, you acquired yes. Charles Barkley. And right. was that the biggest move you've ever made as an executive? Uh, I'm not sure about that. I've made a lot of, I would consider big moves, but I will say this. Um, I mean, we transaction, were a transaction, I meant. Yeah, transaction. Yeah, we, yeah. Were, we were a little frustrated with the success we've had, but couldn't get over the hump. Mm -hmm. And we thought Charles could be that. And we traded a couple of popular players to Philadelphia, Jeff Hornacek in particular, who was a local favorite. Yeah. Um, and Charles came in with a new coach, Paul Westfall, right. who hadn't coached yet. That's right. We had a new building. We had opened a new building. We were sold out for the year. We didn't need any tickets sold. He was brought here for one reason, and that was to win a championship. We had the best record in basketball in that first season. Mm hmm. Uh, and we almost lost in the first round of the playoffs against the Lakers. The Lakers, 0-2 down. You're down 0-2. We five games that and time. came back and won three straight. Mm -hmm. And then we moved on. Um, and we lose in six to Chicago when, you know, obviously Michael and Scottie Pippen. Um, it's interesting. I saw Horst Grant there at the uh, All-Star festivities. And there was a play in the sixth game of that um final series where he had the ball and didn't want to shoot it and gave it up to Paxton who hit the shot to win it for them. Yep. I'll always remember. I just wish Grant would have taken the darn shot, <laughs> but uh, it didn't happen. Wasn't meant to be. Um, but you know, we had a lot of great years uh, close, but no cigar uh, irony for me came when I got involved in baseball right after the 93 season. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and in our fourth year, we won a World Series, the fastest team ever in the history of baseball. And um, uh, that's the irony. Four years in baseball, you win it all. And a lot of years in basketball, and never won it. Wow, interesting. And, and that's what I was going to ask you as well about how you were able to get elevate the Arizona Diamondbacks 1995 the team was announced to to join Major League Baseball then right. 1998 the first season of the inaugural right. season then 2001 you beat the dynastic New York Yankees <laughs> like like yes. and and in seven games with I think the t- the greatest pitching performances I've ever seen with Randy Johnson Kurt Schilling I mean that duo was amazing. Um, and, and now, but talk about how you were able to build that roster to elevate so fast, so rapidly. Especially, it's hard in baseball with all the parity too. Well, it's interesting because we had a game plan going into our first year in baseball, and that was to build through the farm system. So, in other words, a slow process. Our fans, we thought, would be very patient because of the novelty of Major League Baseball, mm-hmm. etc. Uh, we had a typical expansion year, um, and then we saw that we had lost a lot of our support, season ticket support, when we were sending out renewals. And uh, as a result of that, I called a, a meeting of my partners, and I said, you know, um, here's where we are financially. The league had held back some television money originally. We had a cost overrun on building the stadium. A lot of factors put us behind the eight ball right from the get-go. And I said, so with the loss of the season ticket money that we're now experiencing, I think we have to change up and do a new plan. They said, what's the new plan? I said, we have to be competitive now. Mm -hmm. And so that means free agency. That means being aggressive. And we may have to pay the price down the road, but I want to win now to establish a solid base of support and then we'll pay for it over a period of time in Mm -hmm. deferred compensation. Mm -hmm. And my target was pitching. I was convinced in my own mind that if he had the pitching, you had a chance. So we signed some free agents uh, like Matt Williams and Jay Bell and um, Mm -hmm. Luis Gonzalez too, right? Luis Gonzalez. Pardon? Luis Gonzalez as well, right? We traded, we traded for, for him. Right, trade, right, right. And uh, we gave up a prospect who never amounted to anything in Detroit, but we got we got Gonzalez, who had his best year of his career when he came to us and then mm-hmm. took off. Um, Randy was my target. Randy Johnson, who was a free agent, we got him, traded for uh, uh, Kurt Schilling, and all of a sudden – we had a. We didn't have just one number one ace on the staff. We had two, mm-hmm. and that that's big when you can count on forty wins from from two guys. And and so we we kind of shocked everyone with what we did. I had a new four year plan. That plan results were three divisional titles and a World Series championship. So this was a time when a, a game plan really did work. <laughs> That's right, because it came into fruition for sure. Yes. Talking with uh, Jerry Colangelo, Naismith Basketball Hall of Famer, and also World Series champion as um, as uh, president of the Arizona Diamondbacks as well. Uh, very uh, rich and prolific career in sports. You also brought hockey 
to Phoenix as well. You spearheaded that with uh, they were the Phoenix Coyotes, and now they're the Arizona Coyotes. So or Coyotes, like there's so many ways. Coyotes. 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 Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah, some people say Coyotes. It's crazy. Like tomato, tomato, potato, potato. But anyway. Yes. yes. <laughs> but um, now you that was great because that's now hockey is is really as prevalent in the united states as it is in canada so um just for all the sports in general for arizona for the state of arizona um talk about the process of being able to to bring that visibility to the state and to the city of phoenix well when i when i first came to to arizona in 68 i saw it i saw it as a young um small community quite honestly compared to the big cities but i saw a blank canvas Mm -hmm. and i saw an opportunity to paint your own portrait and i made some statements when i first arrived here and that was to say we'll be the first professional sports team we want to make our mark on this community we want to carry the flag for phoenix and the state of arizona someday I want all four major sports to be represented here. Mm-hmm. I wanted it to be a major league city. And so that was from day one. And so, um, you know, started this, the, uh, obviously the basketball franchise, the baseball franchise, uh, the commissioner of the NHL called, asked me for some help. We brought the Winnipeg jets to Arizona. So now we had that, uh, the Cardinals who were in St. Louis saw all of, our success Mm -hmm. and decided they wanted to be part of that. So all of a sudden we had all four major league sports and the city has grown into such a large degree. It's amazing. There were about 700,000 people in the Valley of the sun, as it's referred to back in 1968. Today there's 5 million in that same area. And so that's incredible growth and it's not over with. Uh, it's one of the two or three major growth markets in the country. And so I uh, remember people saying to me, I hope you don't become another L.A., you know, mm-hmm. just kind of rambling, rambling. And to some degree, we are becoming a little bit of that. And I hope we could put the skids on that because too much growth is not necessarily in your best interest. Mm-hmm. But we could now support all the major league teams. Well, absolutely. And and speaking of uh, the Phoenix area, Larry Fitzgerald just recently joined the Phoenix Suns ownership group. What's your thoughts on that with him being, I would say, basically the, the greatest athlete, professional athlete in Arizona history, joining uh, the Suns organization? Uh, what's your take on that? You know, I, I actually, Larry's a, a partner of mine in, in a lot of real estate that we do, mm-hmm. um, real estate investments. And I was on the phone with him yesterday. Uh, talking about some things. And now I thought that was a good move on the part of Robert Sarver, the individual I sold the sons to, uh, to bring Larry, Larry into the, uh, uh, the mix, if you will. Uh, Larry's a classy guy. You want people like that associated with your franchise. He's a big basketball fan. Uh, he's a great golfer. He's, he's a great all around guy, but the most important thing is he's a good father He's a good person, and I have great respect for him. Yes, indeed, and and future first ballot Hall of Famer uh, for sure. 
Definitely. And speaking of baseball, we were talking about baseball earlier. Um, the cheating scandal that happened involving the Houston Astros and also the Boston Red Sox were implicated in that as well. Um, yes. What is your take on on the reaction of the Astros organization? And also as well, how would you have penalized them for for their transactions and what they did? Well, let me make some overall uh, comments, first of all. Mm -hmm. um, we live in a society where, um, in many ways, we've lost our moral compass mm. about how we conduct ourselves, our lives, our businesses. In, in, in professional sports, is a business, so they're not immune to the same issues. And uh, when it becomes easy to cheat, or it becomes enticing to take shortcuts, um, because you're so anxious to win, you'll do anything to do it. Mm -hmm. That's a problem. And so, um, you know, sports needs integrity to maintain the kind of following you want from a fan base mm -hmm. uh, in every respect. And when the integrity of a game um, of, a, of a sport is, uh, is at stake, uh, you have to deal with these issues if people are breaking the, the rules in a very stern way, mm -hmm. you can't, you know, pussyfoot around it. You can't do that. You have to just address the issue, take the action. People have to pay the price. If you play that kind of game, you're going to pay the price if you get caught. Mm -hmm. But do things that prevent people from wanting to take these shortcuts. And I think one of the deterrents that would take place is if somebody was thrown out for life i'm just throwing uh, examples out i'm not suggesting anything mm -hmm. or the the discipline that was required or the penalty for for what they did was so severe that it would make you stop and think about ever doing that again maybe that's the kind of deterrent that needs to be done thus far just talking about it doesn't seem to solve it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, the best way to to uh to get to someone is to take money out of his pocket and you won't do it again. Yep. And assets, you know, a la yes. draft picks, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Now and that's a general, I'm generalizing when I respond to that. Right. Rob Manford, the commissioner of baseball is a friend. I knew him when I was active in baseball and uh, I think he has said some things. He's sorry. He said, yeah. you know, regarding the trophy and, you know, he made a, took a shot at the trophy, which was saying it was a piece of crazy, metal, stupid and not very smart. Mm -hmm. uh, but so he made a mistake. He's already apologized for it. And I, I give him a pass on, on something like that. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, I would just like to see some stern action uh, taken uh, to to deal with uh, what transpired in baseball. And hopefully it wouldn't happen again. Hopefully. And and. Do you think that this controversy is going to increase the visibility interest in Major League Baseball? Because remember, like Major League Baseball attendance has gone down. Ratings has gone down. Do you think now everyone's going to want to see every Houston Astro game, every Boston Red Sox game? Like, do you think you know how it is? Bad news is good news. <laughs> so do you think this? Could That's interesting. Up, yeah. Do you think yeah. this could raise the visibility of the game? Well, I don't know. You know, we'll find that out at the end of uh at the end of the year, the biggest issue for baseball, quite honestly, is participation. 
Mm-hmm. The young kids aren't playing baseball like they once used to. Yep. You know, the sand lots are empty. You know, it's mm-hmm. a, even the basketball courts are empty in a lot of, a lot of the cities. We need more participation in all the sports, mm-hmm. but where basketball is still on a trajectory, you know, upward, baseball is flat or going down, certainly in participation. Uh, hard to follow something if you've never played it. And so I think that's the biggest challenge they have. Interesting. And that, like for me, baseball is still my favorite sport, you know, and I, yeah. and I played a little league. I mean, my dreams ended at 13 when I knew, you know, I yeah. wasn't gonna, but I did end up playing music, which worked out great. <laughs> so, there you go. <laughs> so I'm with um, Naismith Basketball Hall of Famer, Jerry Calangelo on Where They At. My name is Nabate Isles. And Mr. Calangelo, you're, of course, you've been the chairman of USA Basketball since 2005, and you garnered the renaissance. Uh, well, actually, it was a brief decline 2002 with the FIBA team finishing six 2004 the bronze medal but then the redeemed team really uh set the tone for olympic basketball once again but there's been many in instances of some players not really taking the opportunity to play in the olympics or FIBA world cup seriously or really taking pride in that and I know that's open frustration for you. Like, how do you open a line of communication with those players to express that frustration and being able to navigate who you can sense out and weed out who would really want to be there? Well, I need to give you a little history there so that uh, it's clear. Mm-hmm. I actually took over the reins of USA basketball in 05. Mm-hmm. This was after the Olympics in Greece in 04, where we finished third. Mm -hmm. It was because of that showing when I got the call from, at that time, Commissioner David Stern, um, who asked me the question. I was home recovering from surgery uh, when he called and he said, Jerry, would you take over USA basketball? And I said, instinctively from the gut, as I usually make decisions, I said, I'll do it, but I have two conditions. He said, what are they? I said, one is full autonomy. Mm -hmm. I'll pick the coaches. I'll pick the players. No more politics. He said, done. What's number two? I said, I don't want to hear about a budget. And he yelled and screamed about that. (laughs) And I let him go. And I said, are you finished? And he said, yes. I said, it's still number two. And he acquiesced. And then I assured him, don't worry about the money. I'll raise it. But I wanted your commitment on the front end. So it was at that point that I made some statements about how we had to change the culture, how we needed to earn back the respect from the world basketball community. You only get that back by showing respect. Yes. So we needed real changes. And then I said, I'll meet with each player one-on-one, eyeball to eyeball, which I did. And I got tremendous buy-in. And we had the players. Immediately, we had the players. Mm -hmm. So... We've had a heck of a run with USA basketball since that time. You know, the, the new format for that FIBA adopted, I knew it was going to hurt USA basketball when they backed up the World Cup in 19 and the Olympics in 20. Yep. When we had every other year of competition and players had an opportunity to play every other year. But when you back it up like they just did to us, We were affected more than anyone else. We, the United States. Mm -hmm. And I knew I could see it coming. And that's why I was against it personally. 
Right. But that decision was made above me. And so uh, we paid a price last summer when we lost in the world world champ in the world cup. Yep. Now, yes, players decided they weren't going to play many of them. Um, but we had a couple of injuries. If we had not had the injuries while we were gone par- participating in the world cup, I think we would have won anyway, but mm-hmm. nobody remembers that I do. Doesn't really matter at, at this point. I was just upset about the fact that the rules were changed the players responded accordingly. And so did I expect this year uh, as we prepare for the, for the Olympics to be different? Mm-hmm. Yes. And it is, it is, everybody wants to play in the Olympics. You know, it's interesting in our country, the Olympics are number one, the world cup is a far distant number two. Yep. The rest of the world looks at the world cup number one and the Olympics number two. Mm. That's our mindset. That's their mindset. And so another interesting fact I'll tell you is that many of the international players, and we have a ton of them in the NBA today, as you well know, mm-hmm. um, there's some stars, there's some average players, etc. Mm-hmm. I'll talk about the average guys. When they put on their country uniform, France, Spain, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. they're different. Yeah. They're like transformed. They play on another level. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of an inter- interesting uh, situation that develops in international play. So doesn't matter who we have, we're always in for tough competition That's right. for that one variable I just mentioned. And so this summer, I expect us to be loaded. I really do. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to pick our team until the first week or 10 days of June. And we go to training camp July 3rd or 4th. And uh, there we go. We'll have a very strong team. We'll have a target on our backs and we'll be in for some tough competition. Yes. And, and that's what I was going to going to get to. There's a list of 44 players that you and uh, Coach Popovich, Greg Popovich, have and you both are picking. That's interesting. Picking the players instead of tryouts. Um, right. Yeah. Now. Any superstar players that are fully committed to be there that that you and Coach Popovich have already decided, like, okay, uh, this person will be on the team. Like any any player. Every every one of those forty four mm-hmm. were asked one question: If you are selected, are you in or are you out? Mm-hmm. So what you see is forty four names of people who said, "I'll play. I want to play if I'm selected." Mm-hmm. Good, good. That's wow. pretty clear. Yeah. Now, now, can people change their minds? Sure, people change their minds. Uh, injuries play a major role. Yes. You know, we've had some key injuries here. Kyrie Irving, think about his injury. He's yeah. out for the year now. Right. Paul George got hurt recently. Mm-hmm. A few others have, who are on that list have had injuries. Mm-hmm. And so some of them eliminate themselves just due to circumstances. And we'll just have to play this thing out. We monitor everything as the season continues. But come June, we're going to be ready to select. Mm-hmm. And and it's interesting, Stephen Curry and Clay Thompson, two players that are pretty much going to be out for the rest of the season. Now, th- this is – it'll be They a good want op- to play. Exactly. And that's what I was about to ask. It's a good opportunity for them to be able to get their, get their legs back and represent the USA. 
yeah, we have to we have to weigh all of these all all of these factors. You know, mm-hmm. you know, I'll put Durant in the same in the same boat. Oh, Kevin Durant too. Oh my god, how can I forget him? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, you could build a case for saying, okay, so maybe a couple of them come back and play a few games in March or early April, and that's part of the process of them getting ready for next year, and that this summer that the Olympic training camp and participation could be yet another step in them getting ready for next season in the NBA. And that's all true, Mm -hmm. but it depends on each individual situation. So I can't generalize there. Uh, We're talking to each one of the guys. Um, They have a lot of people supporting them, uh, advising them, et cetera. Um, But let's put it this way. All three of them, if, if they want to play, if they're capable of playing at the level they need to be at mm-hmm. that we require, I mean, how, how could you not have those people involved? Think about it. You're talking about three great players. Right. Absolutely. And, and, and players that know each other very well from winning two right. championships with the Golden right. State Warriors. So, um, wow. Where are they at? 10th edition featuring... Mr. Jerry Corlangelo here. My name is Nabate Isles. And potential changes that are that were mentioned a few months back uh, for the 2021-22 season, which will be the 75th year of the National Basketball Association. You know, 78-game regular season, 30-team in-season tournament, uh, a play-in tourney for the 7th and 8th seeds, meaning 7 through 10 for both conferences will play against each other, and then you determine the 7th and 8th seed, and then a Final Four reseed in the playoffs of the conference finals. Are you for those rule changes? And do you think the NBA, because I asked this of Rod, Rod Thorne, too, when he was a guest on the show, I asked him the same question. Does the NBA need to make these radical changes? I think what you just described is a classic example of how the NBA is always looking to do things better. Mm-hmm. How can they create more interest? What what tweaks can be made? And so look at the format for the All-Star game just concluded. The Elam, it turned Elam. out to be a tremendous mm-hmm. success. Mm-hmm. No one really knew what to expect, you know, in terms of uh, really basically having a format of pickup basketball, you mm-hmm. know, for three quarters. Yep. And then and then laying out some odds in the fourth quarter, the way, you know, the way the formula was. Um, it worked out great. I mean, I think people really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. What happened? It was a it was as competitive an all-star game as we've ever had. That's right. And they really did play defense. Yes. Because in the past, that wasn't the case. It's just been kind of a show. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think those changes were well-received. Now, the ideas that you're you're throwing out regarding scheduling and games and so on and so forth, um, it's going to take um, a lot of coming together in terms of uh, – ownership to to make those changes maybe some of them will be adopted maybe maybe they'll all be adopted over a period of time um but i don't think the game is is requiring radical change mm-hmm. you know it's a pretty darn good game right now the way it is mm-hmm. and it's one thing to change the format of things that you describe it's another thing to talk about the change of rules you know maybe 17 18 years ago our game was not in good shape. Um, Scoring was down, percentages were down, 
Right. Uh, we had things that were not very attractive, like um, um, isolation basketball, where two guys would, were involved in the game and three were standing over in the corner. Yep. Um, the guards had no business in the lane, and they were just killed, the mm-hmm. little guards. Mm-hmm. Um, hand-checking was terrible. Defensive guidelines, no one truly understood. Right. Um, and so I said to David Stern one day in his office, I said, David, I'm a lifer. And when I get turned off on the game, it's a problem. Mm. He said, what do you think needs to be done? I said, we have to clean it up, speed it up, and bring a lot of change to the game. So we said, appoint a committee. I did. We met in Phoenix at the Phoenician. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the end of the day, we had agreed to eliminate isolation basketball. We eliminated the defensive guidelines. We put in a three-second offensive and a three-second defensive lane violations. Uh, We did away with hand checking. We sped up the game by uh, reducing the number of seconds to advance the ball over midcourt from 10 to 8 seconds. Mm -hmm. Um, And guess what happened? The scoring went up. The percentages went up. The point guards were back in the game. Mm-hmm. It cleaned up the game, and we took off. We just we made a lot of changes at once. That's really unusual for any league to make those many changes on the game on the rules mm-hmm. of the game. And so, I don't think the game needs to be uh, changed. Although I will make this comment: no one would have anticipated that the three-point shot would be as prevalent in today's game as it once was. I mean, it just has taken on a new life. Mm -hmm. And I think analytics has have a lot to do with that. You know, they, they figured out that uh, you, you take enough threes and make enough threes. You don't need the twos. Mm -hmm. And therefore you have, you finish at the rim for a two or you take a three. You don't see mid range shots anymore. You just don't or very seldom. And so that's where the game has changed a little bit. Um, but all the changes you're referring to, those are formats. Those are not about the game itself, in my opinion. More about the three-point shot. It, it, it's it, The numbers, I mean, there are more threes taken than twos now, basically. Correct. Um, for the future, does that really help the future of the game with that, um, with three-pointers being thrown up from 30, 40 feet, et cetera? No, I can't say it's 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 good for for the game. I'd like to see, I'd like to see the big men be able to play with their backs to the basket mm-hmm. and bring back center play. Yeah, that's the thing of the past. You don't yes. see the big. I mean, look at it this this way. In our country, or look in the NBA, all of the centers, all the bigs are European players. Mm-hmm. All, all right. the bigs are Europeans or South America or whatever. They're international players. Right. We don't have, we don't create any bigs. The mm-hmm. bigs in our country want to play on the uh, they want to shoot threes. Mm-hmm. Think and, about that. And our beam poles too, skin, very skinny yes. as well. <laughs> yes. So uh, that's where the game has changed to to a large degree here. Um, but but I I think originally when we adopted the three point shot in the league, and I remember that I was on competition rules committee hundred years ago and was very involved in all of that mm-hmm. is that we thought the three point shot would be, give you a home run effect. And if a team was down, it was a way to come back in the game, etc. 
But now it's part of the heck. The opening tap goes up, and the guy takes a three. Yep. I mean, that's the strategy. Get as many threes up there as you can, and if you make enough of them, you win. Hmm. Yeah, that's it's it's interesting for sure. I think uh, always, you know, everything comes back full circle eventually. Yes. It always, yeah. always revolves that way. Um, now, the Hall of Fame class, you're the chairman of the Nations yes. Basketball Hall of Fame. The Hall of Fame class of 2020, I mean, the final finalist. I had the honor to be at this ceremony last week. Kobe Bryant, Tamika Ketchens, Tim Duncan, Kevin Garnett, Kim Mulkey, Barbara Stevens, Eddie Sutton, and Rudy Tomjanovich. Like, what stands out about each of those individuals real quickly, like something that stands out about each of those uh, great Well, they all figures. have credentials in their own rights, you know, as, as coaches, uh, tremendous records, uh, tremendous uh, accomplishments, uh, the players themselves. You know, when you look at the accolades – and the awards that they've all received, it's, it's amazing. In particular, Kobe, um, Garnett, and Duncan. Yes. Um, you know, we, we have kind of a point system. We give credit for um, all-star appearances, for all-league uh, representation, first team, second team, third team, all defensive teams, blah, blah, blah. All these things. Well, those three players have numbers that just blow you away Mm -hmm. because of their longevity, because of all of the uh, awards uh, and achievements during the course of their careers. Mm -hmm. And to put anyone up against them, it pales the other guy. Yeah. One of the reasons on the player side that we decided we weren't going to have a large class this year is that it would take away from the enormity of those top three guys that I'm referring to. Yes. And more importantly, would take away from someone who would get lost in the shuffle and not get their due. Mm-hmm. Cause it's a big day. You know, it's one of the great days for, I mean, I experienced it myself going mm-hmm. into the hall of fame. So I understand the significance. So our, our opinion, our decision as a committee was to say, you know, small class um, this time around, we won't, submit a lot of names like we have in the past and so it's going to be a smaller class and i think for the right reasons i'm so glad that rudy tomjanovich is part of that list because five-time all-star as a player two-time championship head coach with houston and it was right in between the run of the bulls right in between when michael retired he him and hockey took advantage and a gold medal in the 1996 that's right 96 team yes so all of these things add up you know in terms of and Rudy's been, uh, his name has been submitted in the past, same with Eddie Sutton. Mm-hmm. And I hope I hope we can get them the uh, required votes. Right. And Kim Mulkey, 600 and 100, that's just mind-boggling. Absolutely. <laughs> For Baylor. And so, uh, you know, I'm going to be surprised if any of the candidates don't get elected because it's a smaller group. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think there's a good chance that's the way it'll happen. But... They have to get 18 votes out of the 24 uh, that will be voting. Right, right. So and that'll all be done between now and the final four. That's right. That's right. The final four uh, weekend is when the announcement of the class. We announced the actual inductees. Right. Mm-hmm. The Phoenix Suns have have really made an improvement this year. James Jones has done a great job so far. What is your take on James Jones, and can he continue to get the franchise back to where it was when you were running it? Well, James played for me as a, as a player. Mm-hmm. I like him very much as a person. 
Uh, I think he's a class guy, uh, very smart, bright guy. I think he's done a real, really good job. Mm-hmm. And um, hopefully the dividends are going to be there. They have a lot of injuries. People aren't, you know, you look at the record, you see where they are right now, but you know, some of their, some of their players have been down and yeah. out for quite some time. They're bigs. And uh, um, so I think they have a chance to get much better during the court for the balance of this year. And uh, I think they're on the right track. Let's put it that way, whether they can get over the hump this season or it's all a a preliminary getting ready for next year, we'll wait and see. Yep. And Devin Booker has really, I mean, his efficiency and and his maturity is really, it's, you can see it's been evident this season. Oh yes. Yeah. I like Devin Booker. I mean, here's, I just like him as a young man. I think he has tremendous talent and I think his, uh, his confidence level is growing all the time. Yes. And, and I liked his answer when I asked him about players that he would watch the old school players. And he talked about Kevin McHale's footwork and like, I was like, wow, it gave me a very involved answer. I was very impressed with that. Uh, We're going to do one more thing uh, before we go um, and everything. And it's, it's called fast break. It's a segment I do with fast uh, random questions for my guests. Um, So if if you were a baseball player, which you were involved in baseball, so I can also say hit and run. So it's like a hit and run fast break cornucopia like gumbo <laughs> type of thing okay um but here we go favorite chicago cub since you're a cubs fan um uh, ernie banks right the song that best reflects you uh my way ah yes yes indeed by uh, the great francis sinatra frank sinatra yes um most bizarre player coach or executive you've been around um marty blake okay <laughs> yes the great marty blake scout yes indeed who, who you've known since the 60s right since the mid 60s right. um toughest executive decision you've had to make uh firing um, a good friend of mine and replacing himself with myself to coach the sons in the second year of the franchise that's right johnny red kerr that's right. Yes. Right. Um, greatest team in NBA history. The the one team that one season was the greatest because we've had great teams, but you've seen all you've seen a lot of basketball. Who's the greatest team in your view? Uh, it's a tie between one of the Celtic teams, and I can't remember the year, and the Laker team that won all the games they did with Chamberlain and West and Baylor, a team that I coached against. That's right, 71-72 Lakers, yes. Okay. yes. And I'm thinking maybe the 58-59 Celtics probably because they won. Well, yeah, that could be the year. I just can't remember the year. Yes, wow, because they came but back. Great talent, great mm-hmm. guys. Uh, they were terrific. And they were on a mission because the St. Louis Hawks took them out the year before. So, yes, yeah. <laughs> they're on a mission to get back to championship level. Favorite music artist and or entertainer? Sinatra, okay. Anything he's saying, <laughs> or any film he acted in too. <laughs> Not so much about his acting, but his music for sure. Didn't he win an Oscar? He did win an Academy Award. Listen, in in Phoenix, all the guys who park cars, you know the uh, the, the service guys. Mm-hmm. You know they know you when they when they when I show up. They, Jerry, everything about you, Mister Colangelo, you're very consistent. You've always had a black car 
and you always have Sinatra music playing in your car. <laughs> and I said, that's it. You got me down. That's it. For sure. And I love the Sinatra at the Sands album. Quincy Jones conducting. Yes, that's the Basie a good one. Band. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Whew, I love amazing. Tom Basie, too. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, yeah. If Now, this is, this is a tough one. If you were to hire one coach out of these four, who would it be? Red Arbach, Pat Riley, Phil Jackson, or Greg Popovich? Well, what I would do is uh, um, throw a coin up in the air with, with four sides to it. And however, however it fell would be the guy I would take. I couldn't go wrong. I couldn't go wrong. That's, I'm a winner with any one of the four. Yes, that's true. That's a, that's a good answer for sure. Like a square or something. Throw. Yes. <laughs> and uh, one more question in the fast break segment. The one person who's deceased that you never met who you would want to have lunch or dinner with? Jesus Christ. Mm. Yes. Wow. Powerful answer right there. And uh, wow. Before I let you go, I um, want to ask, how is your son, Brian Corangelo doing? How's he doing? He's doing fine. He's uh, very active in basketball and keeping tabs on uh, what's happening in the NBA, what's happening internationally. He spends a lot of time in Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, watching the, those players and the leads. And uh, he's hopeful of another opportunity within the NBA. He's, he's been a GM for 20 years with three different franchises mm-hmm. and still a young man uh, and has a lot to offer. Right. And, and, and hey, you know, anyone, you know, we all make mistakes. And, you know, definitely that he, like you said, with his credentials, he should get another opportunity. He didn't make sure. any mistake either. You know, he was a victim of uh, circumstances mm. and uh, was actually a casualty. Mm. Yeah, right. And uh, before we go, this is a life lesson for the audience. You've been married to, you mentioned the young lady you mentioned at, uh, that yes. you met at the University of Illinois. Yes. Joan, you've been married almost 60 years. What is the key to the wonderful union you both have had? I think we have to listen to our spouses. We have to um, mm-hmm. be able to uh, to resonate with one another, um, be a good listener, be a very, very good listener and uh, try to do things together. And, um, and when your spouse wants you to do something, it probably is wise to do it. That's right. That that's for sure. That's for sure because it's they know you more than you know yourself, pretty much. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, Mr. Corlangelo, I want to say thank you for the honor and privilege to speak with you on where they add on the tenth edition, and it was my honor to talk with you. Thank you for joining me. It's been my pleasure to be with you, and good luck to you. Thank you all for listening to the tenth edition of Where They At. And I want to thank Mr. Jerry Corlangelo for for his time. I mean, he's very busy and and he's done so much to uh, augment not just basketball, the game of basketball, but sports as well. And I want to thank him for joining 
where they at. Also, I want to thank once again, One of One Productions here in Fort Lee with Fela, Dennis, and Joy. I mean, their studio, as I've always mentioned, is like a second home for sure. It's like so relaxing to be able to host uh, these episodes of where they at here in this wonderful dwelling. And I want to thank also as well, the other guests that have been on this is the 10th episode wow so i want to thank warren moon once again he was on the first episode of where they at i want to thank david robinson second episode of where they at uh rod thorne the third guest on where they at uh fourth guest ferguson jenkins uh who was on the show also as well eric davis too nfl the the 49ers and panthers eric davis he was the fifth guest mr otis oj anderson was the sixth guest of where they at number seven was mr darrell revis want to thank him as well number eight was mr george foreman and then number nine the ninth episode i want to thank all the people that spoke with me at all-star weekend but the three features that i uh, conducted the three feature interviews i want to thank wayne embry mr wayne embry mr thorough bailey and mr alex english as well as uh, as well as mike breen tamika ketchins and cheryl swoops i spoke with them uh for some interviews as well not as long not a feature interview but it was it was a good good portion to talk with them as well well and of course all the players that that answered questions that I asked and I want to also thank the individuals who have offered greetings to my guests I have to thank them for taking time out I want to thank Vinny Del Negro I want to thank Branford Marcellus I want to thank Dwight Gooden I want to thank Common also Kenyon Martin Sr. I want to thank Bob Huggins as well I want to thank uh, Merton Hanks I want to thank Demario Davis I want to thank Teddy Atlas I want to thank also Mark Bavaro uh, so those are the great people that have contributed greetings to the guests that I've had on where they at you can check out the show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. make sure to subscribe and or follow and rate the show as well I'm on also social media I'm at on Instagram it's uh, dot re they at and on twitter it's w-h-e underscore r-e they at and also on facebook too where they at you can check me out and make sure you follow those accounts as well and if you like the music check out the music on n-a-b-a-t-e I-S-L-E-S dot com. Make sure you go to my website. And the music is from the album Eclectic Excursions, which you can also be able to listen to on Apple Music, Spotify, Tidal, Google Play, Amazon, etc., etc. So my name is Nabate House. Thank you for listening to Where They At. And I'll be back very soon with another episode. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>